Good morning. I'm Andrew Morton, and it's my pleasure and privilege to read God's word for us this morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15, and you can find it on page 1154 in the Bibles provided in front of you. I encourage you to follow along, whether in these Bibles or in your own that you brought this morning. Please listen to God's word from Galatians 5, 1 through 15. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. The word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Chicago. We were there to visit our son who lives up there and is building a life and a career up in Chicago. So we went to visit him. And uh, we figured out pretty quickly that there are three ways to get around in Chicago. You can walk, you can ride a bus, or you can take the train. We didn't want to take a taxi because that would be very expensive. And we didn't want a rental car either. Not only would it be expensive, it's fairly unneeded. They have such a good public transportation system. So we spent our time, we were there for about uh, four days, figuring out, how to walk, how to navigate around the streets of Chicago, how to ride the bus system, and how to ride the train. And I think by the very end of our visit there, we just about had it figured out. So when we go back again, we'll know what to do. Three ways to get around Chicago. I use that as simply a little analogy to say that there are three ways to live. There are three ways to live, and I'll tell you what they are in just a moment. But first, let's do a little bit of review. 
Some of you perhaps have not been here recently or perhaps at all. If this is your first visit, we are in the middle uh, or actually near the tail end of a study of Paul's letter to the people of Galatia, the book of Galatians. And we've called this series Astonished because as Paul goes through his letter to the Galatians, he, he expresses great astonishment at the fact that they have been drifting away from the gospel. You see some people, some false teachers, Uh, professing Christians who came from a Jewish background had found their way into the church in Galatia. We call them Judaizers. And these Judaizers were saying that in order to be a Christian, in order to really obtain the love of God and to be truly spiritual, truly saved, a person had to adopt and follow the ceremonies and the traditions and the customs of the Jewish religion. If they were male, they needed to be circumcised. That was a major point of their teaching. But whoever they were, male or female, they had to basically become Jewish. And the people of Galatia were largely Gentiles. So these false teachers were telling them, you're not there yet. You know, it's not just Jesus equals salvation. It's Jesus plus something equals salvation. Salvation. Jesus plus the Jewish ceremonial laws. Je- Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the Mosaic and rabbinic teachings and so on equals salvation. So at the end of Galatians, we're now in chapter 5. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6, the rest of the series. Paul is going to switch gears a little bit and he's going to get practical and apply what he has said so far in the book of Galatians. But before he does that, In our text this morning, he wants to make very sure that we've gotten the message. And so he really hones in in verse 1, and he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Keep standing firm. It's a present imperative verb. Keep standing firm and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Be on your guard, Paul is saying to these Galatian Christians. Be on your guard against the teachings of the of the Judaizers. Keep holding on to the gospel. Don't you dare let it go because Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. They're telling you a lie, Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So don't let yourselves, he says in verse 1, be burdened or entangled, or ensnared, or controlled. In other words, don't submit again to the teachings of the Judaizers, and that's another imperative verb. Don't do it. I hope you hear, I hope you heard when Andrew was reading that Paul is really ticked in this passage. He's very concerned that the people of Galatia are losing hold of that which will save them. In verse 2, Paul goes on to say, if you add anything to faith... As the instrument of salvation, you destroy the gospel of Jesus. You deny his work entirely. In other words, Paul is saying here that if you want to add something to the work of Christ, you're going to be in bondage. Paul says there in verse 1, he calls it a yoke of slavery. To lose Christ or rather to to lose uh, the gospel is to lose Christ. He says in verse 2, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Furthermore, if you lose sight of the gospel, you're going to put yourself under an impossible burden. He says in verse 3, anyone who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. 
See, God expects perfection. You can't just adopt one little piece of the law and say you've done the whole thing. You've got to be perfect. You've got to do it all. And then he says in verse 4, if you lose sight of the gospel of grace, you're alienated from Christ. Or another way to say it is you're, you're cut off from Christ. And maybe in light of Paul's words about circumcision, that's the better word there. You're cut off from Christ if you lose sight of grace. And you've fallen from grace, in fact. Verse 4. Paul is speaking out of this apostolic authority that he has. Did you notice that in verse 2? Mark my words. Have you ever said that to someone? Parents, have you ever said that to your kid? Mark my words. I mean, that's strong language. He says, I, Paul, tell you this. It's either religious ceremonies and traditions or Christ. Jesus is all or he is nothing. Don't you dare mix works of the law with the cross of Christ, because if you do, you're going to render the cross of Christ of no effect. I'm purposely speaking to you guys this way because that's Paul's attitude here as he begins chapter 5. So, if you're paying attention to what I'm saying, it sounds like there are two ways to live, according to Paul. Faith or works. Salvation by grace or salvation by law. But Paul says something very interesting in this text that we're going to look at today. He's going to say that there are actually three possible ways to live. And I struggled with how to present these three, and I'm trying something. So I hope that it'll work. I'm going to give you the lesson of this text in the form of a chart. Those of you who are engineer types, computer geeks and so on, you might enjoy this. Uh, But I'm going to walk you through this chart today. You can... I'm going to take my time. You can take notes. You can write your little chart there on your slip of paper and fill in every single block because that's what we're going to do. Because as I read Galatians 5, 1 through through 15, over and over again, it appeared that Paul was seeking very hard to line this all out so that we would fully get the difference between the gospel and the false gospels of the Judaizers. So here's a chart, and it's going to be called Three Ways to Live. Let's start with the first way. And this one is the obvious one. The first way that a human being could choose to live is live by law. Live according to law-keeping. Or another word that we've Matt and I have used from time to time is the word legalism. It's possible to choose to live by law. Now, I'm talking here... And Paul is talking here about any effort at all to find your validation, to build a record, to justify your existence, to measure your worth or pass muster in the eyes of God or in the eyes of other people in any way apart from Jesus Christ. Now, for the Galatians, as you know, it was obeying the Jewish ceremonial laws, like I've said. But for people today, for you and for me, It could take hundreds of different forms, but what they all have in common is that the focus is on good works. The focus is on good works, being good, making all A's, turning in a spotless paper to your professor, having obedient children, 
being a model citizen, paying your bills on time, staying on a budget, keeping a perfectly clean home, maintaining a disciplined life, keeping your weight down, eating healthy foods, abstaining from smoking, drinking only in moderation, staying happily married. It could take religious forms such as going to church a lot, reading the Bible through in a year, having a prayer diary and keeping a journal. All of those things could be ways that human beings could choose to build a resume, could present themselves to God and say, I've done a good job. You've surely got to approve of me. And I I could go on. I could multiply examples of law-keeping endlessly. Now, are the things that I've listed today bad? No. Those are very good things. In fact, it's important for you to know that circumcision was, in Paul's day, not in itself a bad thing. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 16, you find out that Paul had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was his younger colleague, and Paul wanted Timothy to be circumcised. Why? So that he could have more credibility before his Jewish uh, audience. Timothy was half Jewish, half Gentile. So circumcision was not in itself a bad thing, and neither is the law, and neither are the things that I talked about bad things. The law is a good thing, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, if one uses it properly. What makes legalism bad is the underlying motive behind it. The legalist is trying to build a record before God and before other people by what he or she does rather than by believing the gospel. And that's a big difference. Now, the power behind law-keeping, this way of life called law, is the flesh. That's a Bible word that means self-effort. Self-effort instead of relying upon Jesus. And that was the whole point of the story about Sarah and Hagar that Matt told us last Sunday. If you didn't get that sermon, you got to listen to it. It was awesome. The whole, the whole point of that uh, battle between Sarah and Hagar was over faith versus self-effort. Hagar represented trying to do God's will on your own power, trusting in your own ingenuity instead of trusting in Christ. So whenever you rely on your good looks, your intelligence, your discipline, your rules to build a, a resume, Anything like that would be considered the flesh. But let's keep going. What is the hope of the legalist? That is, what is the legalist's goal in doing these things? The hope is righteousness. The hope is standing before God with a good record. The person who relies on being good, being right, checking all the boxes, obeying all the rules is hoping that he or she will be able to stand before God one day and he will say, come on in. You've done great. I approve of you. But the problem is, the problem is living by law in the power of the flesh doesn't work because the next box, the result, it always results in slavery. Always results in being in bondage. And why is that? It's because you can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. You can never be sure which way the scales will tip in the end. There will always be someone better than you at the top. 
And even if you do make it to the top, even if you prove yourself to be the best in some category of life, you're not perfect, not by a long shot. And Jesus said, you must be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. Nobody reaches that standard. Look at verse 3. It says in that verse, every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. The Apostle James puts it a little bit differently. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So slavery is the result of living according to law. And what's the fruit? What's the fruit of living a law-driven life? One of two things. Pride when you succeed and despair when you fail. One day you're up, the next day you're down because your performance will go up and down. I don't know if any of you watched the TV series Mad Men, but uh, Don Draper, played by John Hamm in that series, is a perfect example of a person who tries to live according to law, being good, being successful, making a lot of money, and yet in that show he is constantly up and constantly down. When he's up, he's very proud of himself, very proud of his Accomplishments, when he's down, he's into alcohol, he's into illicit relationships, he's into all this stuff because it's always that kind of roller coaster life. So I want to ask you now that we're done that first row, how many of you would identify with the lifestyle of law keeping before you met Christ? Does this describe anybody in the room? Uh, Okay, I don't believe that. There are a lot more older brothers in here than that. You know, the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother fits this row right here. The older brother was the guy who said to his father, Father, all these years I've slaved for you. I've obeyed your every order. Read Luke 15. Read the prodigal son story and you'll see that the the older brother fits that row right there perfectly. Living according to law keeping, trying by his own good works in his flesh to achieve a, a measure of righteousness. But it ended up being ensla- he ended up being enslaved and he had no relationship with the father. In fact, he was. He fell into despair at the end of the parable. Otherwise, he would have been a very proud person. Well, before we get to uh, the answer to that, I want to show you the second way to life. The second way to live. And this is the one that's more subtle. Perhaps you didn't think of it. Perhaps you didn't see it. But the second wrong way to live is the way of license. In this text today, verse 13, at the end of it, Paul talks about living by license or licentiousness or just doing whatever you want to do. Look at verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Now, you see, this is the opposite of the first way to live. This is the opposite of living by law. This is lawlessness. Some people would call it antinomianism. The word means against law, antinomianism. It's casting off all restraint. It's living any old way you want to. It's living for the moment. It's living purely for self-actualization, self-realization, self-expression. It's being greedy and materialistic. It's living immorally. It's breaking the law, breaking the rules. 
keeping God at a distance so that you can live just for yourself. And what Paul is doing at the end of the text is he's warning us not to use our freedom in Christ that we have as a pretext or as an excuse for self-centeredness because it can happen. It could have happened in Galatia. It can happen in our lives. You can fall off the beam in two directions. The Galatians, if they didn't turn into legalists, might have become hedonists. Those are the two directions that one can fall off the beam, into legalism or hedonism. The focus of this way of life is pleasure. It's pleasure. You remember what the younger brother said to his father in that parable? Luke 15, the prodigal son story. Remember what the younger brother said to his dad? He said, give me my share of the estate. I'm out of here. And so the younger brother took his money, he took his inheritance, he left home, and it says that he squandered his stuff in wild living. He squandered his stuff in license, that lifestyle. Once again, as with legalism, the power of this way of life, the energy of this way of life is the flesh. It's just another form of it. It's my effort to find myself. It's my effort to discover myself, to enjoy myself, to have happiness any old way I want to find it. Who cares who I hurt in the process? So what if I damage myself and those around me? I deserve it. I'm going to do it. That's the way of license. Because the hope, next category, or the goal of the way of license is fulfillment. My fulfillment is what counts. My own fulfillment at your expense. I was talking the other day with uh, a man at LA Fitness. A couple of men here play racquetball with me twice a week, and we have befriended this fellow. His name is Bill. I was talking to Bill about Christ, and we've done this a number of times. And uh, in one recent conversation, we were challenging him about the claims of Christ, and, and he said, no, I'm having too much fun. See, Bill thinks that Christianity is essentially a list of rules and do's and don'ts. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't have fun, don't go to movies. I don't know. Well, I don't know what he's thinking, but he looks at the list of do's and don'ts, and he says, I don't want that, and so what I want is fun. I want license. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you, I asked you about the first row a while ago, how many of you feel that you, before you came to Christ, were the younger brother type? Uh, Raise your hand. Let's see. How many partiers do we have out here? How many druggies? How (laughs) How many drunks? You know, that type of thing. These are the people who think that life is to be found in having a blast while you last. Well... The problem is focusing only on your own pleasure always results in the same thing that legalism results in, slavery. And I suspect that those of you who raise your hands, you can attest to that fact to some degree. That life always results in slavery. Just like the legalist, just like the person who dots every I and crosses every T in life, if the licentious person does not repent. The hedonist is going to wind up in a prison of their own making. Why is that? Why does licentiousness 
end up in slavery? Well, it's because of this thing that God put in inside each and every one of us. It's called a conscience. And the Bible tells us, and experience says this as well, is that everybody understands at a very core level, very deep level of their being, that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And though they may try to suppress the voice of conscience when they're all alone, when it's late at night and they can't sleep, or when the bottom falls out of their lives, and it will, those who live for pleasure feel the chains of sin all around them. They do. Their life looks so glamorous, but it's bondage. And not only that, but you and I as human beings were created in God's image. We were created for relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with other people. And when we are self-centered pigs, we violate our design. We violate the way that God made us, built us, wired us. And so we become slaves. Jesus even puts it that way in John chapter 8. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The fruit, what's the fruit of living only for yourself? The fruit is destruction. It's destruction. Look at verse 15. The last verse of our text says, If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. This is a warning from the Apostle Paul that licentiousness inevitably leads to loss. Loss of friendships, loss of relationships, loss of everything that you were depending on for love. And ultimately, if you keep on living for yourself, you lose all hope of heaven. So I wonder if this row describes anyone here today, now, at this time. Because if it does, be honest, be honest and say, yeah, that's me. And I don't want to end up in destruction. I don't want to be a slave to sin. I hope you'll do what the younger brother did in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember what it says in Luke 15? It says that he came to his senses. He woke up to the reality of what he was doing to himself and to others. He came to his senses and he said, maybe I can go back to the father. Maybe he'll accept me. And he did that. He went back to the father. He repented. That's what the Bible word is. He repented. And he had a speech all prepared. His speech was, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. And, but in the middle of the sentence, the father who was waiting for him ran up to him, put his arms around him, and grabbed him and wouldn't let him finish the speech because he knew the son indeed had repented. He welcomed him back. And I hope that you'll do the same thing. We've seen the two ways, the two wrong ways to live. You can be a law keeper. You can check every box. You can dot every I. You can try by your own self-effort to be a righteous person apart from grace. Or you can just chuck it and live any old way you want to live, hoping that you'll find life in the middle of that effort. But I'm telling you, those are wrong ways to live. The only right way, the only way to live is the third way. It's the way of faith. I was explaining this to the children. The word faith is the instrument by which we receive that justifying grace of God. Let's look together at verses 5 and 6. These two verses, friends, 
are so key to the text and to the Christian life. Look at verse 5. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, I'll explain that a little bit better in a moment. But look at the next sentence. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now, let's translate that and put it into words contemporaries can understand. What Paul is saying there is being circumcised or not has no meaning at all for being justified. Neither living by the rule book nor throwing the rule book out the window can improve your standing before God or deliver what you're looking for. Neither trying to be good nor trying to be bad makes any real difference in the long run because both law and license wind up enslaving you. That's a fuller way to understand that sentence. And then Paul goes on to say that the only thing that counts is faith. You see the word faith twice. It's in verse 5, and there it is again in verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What is faith? What is faith? It's relying, listen carefully, it's relying on the work of Jesus instead of your work. It's receiving and resting upon Him alone for salvation. Not looking to works to justify you and not looking to pleasure to fulfill you. But instead, it's looking to Jesus alone for everything that he wants to give you. Believing that he lived the life that you should live. He died the death that you deserve to die. That's what faith really is. The focus is on Jesus, not self. And that's the difference in this way of life between faith and those other two. The focus is on Jesus, not self. Let me illustrate with a fairly recent thing that happened to some of us on staff here at the church. I believe it was Wednesday, maybe Thursday. I was in my office. A few of us were here just working, and all of a sudden I heard that awful sound of two cars colliding at the corner of Rouse and Laconatosa. It happens so often, unfortunately, we've gotten used to the sound. This, 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 uh, just this horrible thud. And so I looked out the window, and sure enough, two cars had had run into each other. And so uh, Pam Robinson runs out there. I run out there and uh, see that it's a, it's a car accident. So the first thing I did was call 911. I got on my phone and the first thing I did, call 911. I mean, the way of law would have said, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can run out there and help. Maybe maybe I've got the talent. Maybe I've got CPR. Maybe I've got the resources. No, run away from law. The way of license would say, that's their problem. I don't want to get involved. So it's to do nothing. But faith in that situation meant calling somebody to the scene of the accident who could do something about the problem. Stop doing everything and call 911. That's faith. When you're aware of your sin, when you're aware of your great need, of your brokenness, of your misery, of the brokenness of this world, law, what good's that going to do? I, I'm not good enough. License, what good's that going to do? I'm just going to end up hating myself. 
I'm going to call 911. I'm going to rely on Jesus. He's got the power. He knows what to do. It's relying on the work of Jesus instead of you, instead of anything. So what's the power of that? What's the power of that life? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Not you. See, that's what it says in verse 5. It's through the Spirit, says Paul in verse 5, by faith that we wait for the hope of righteousness. It's through the Spirit that He is the power for living the kind of life that really works. That word hope, let's dwell on that for a moment. That word hope in verse 5 is not the kind of hope you and I think it is. When we use the word hope, we're thinking hope so. I hope it doesn't rain or I hope that uh, we'll have a good day today. I mean, that's hope so. It's vague. It's uncertain. That's not what the Bible means when it uses the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's speaking of positive certainty. Positive certainty. So the hope of the Christian life is a positive certainty that all of the things that Jesus promised to do, he will do. What has he promised? Notice this column. The hope of the Christian life is adoption, being adopted into the family of God, being justified, forgiven, like I was telling the kids, forgiven of all your sins and declared to be as righteous and holy as Jesus himself is. Being sanctified, that means being set apart for God, being made a saint and being progressively made more and more into the likeness of Christ. And one day your hope, your certain anticipation is your glorification, being united with Christ, conformed to his image and unable to sin in heaven. And then when he returns to the new earth, that's the hope of the Christian. It's a, it's a certainty that we have that fuels the next column, which is the result, and the result of faith is freedom. The result of faith in Christ is freedom. Freedom from what, you ask? Freedom from the law as a guide for life? No. We're not free from God's law in that sense. God still says, I want you to obey the Ten Commandments. Those are the measure. Those are the, that's the guide into what I expect of you. No, you're not free from the law as that kind of a guide, but you are free from the law as a means of right standing before God. You are free from the curse of the law. The law has no claims upon you whatsoever. The law cannot, if you look at the Ten Commandments and you see the pointing finger at you saying, you are a liar, you're an adulterer, you're a thief, you're a covetous person, you haven't been obedient to your parents, you've had idols, you've taken my name in vain. When you, when you hear that accusing finger of accusation, you can say to it, you have no claim on me. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on those areas. But those things do not define me. I'm defined by the righteousness of Christ. I've been set free from the curse and the accusing finger of the law. You're also free from the penalty of sin because Jesus paid it all for you already. Sin's past, sin's present, and sin's future. You're free from the power of sin. That means that it doesn't have mastery over you. You can say to your sin... I bowed before you one time. I'm not going to do it this time by the Holy Spirit's power because you've been united with Christ in his resurrection to a brand new life. And one day you're going to be free not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence 
of sin. It'll be removed from you and you will be unable to sin, if you can imagine that. What else are you free from? You're free from the bondage of Satan, the sting of death and the victory of the grave. You're free from, you're free, get this, you're free to confess your sins to God and to people without fear of condemnation. You're free to approach God at any time, no matter how you feel. You're free to call him Abba, Father. Another word for that would be Daddy, if you want to. You're free to speak your heart to him. You're free to complain to him. You're free to lament to him. You're free to be silent before him. What else are you free from? You're free from all enslaving ceremonies. You're free to be exactly who God has designed you to be in the body of Christ. You're free to fail. You're free to make big mistakes. You're free from the guilt of your imperfect performance. You're also free from needing things like success and human approval and beauty and fame and money and so on to find your happiness because your happiness is rooted in Jesus and he'll never change. You can say to those things, I don't need you. I don't need you to define me. I have Jesus. I have his word. I have his church. I have his spirit. I have his love. And that's all I need. And I'll tell you, when that kind of thinking begins to dominate your heart and begins to dominate your mind, the fruit, last column, of love will exhibit itself in your life. The only thing that counts, says Paul in verse 6, is faith expressing itself through love. Better, faith working through love. That word expressing itself is a little bit weak. I like the word working better. It's the Greek word energeo. You can hear the word energy in there. It means to work or to make or to cause. Faith makes genuine love possible. It creates love. Faith is the gasoline that drives the engine of love, in other words. Faith in Christ, in his promises, in his blood, in his atoning work. That's why Paul can end the text. By quoting the law, love your neighbors yourself. And he says, do it. I want you to do it. Don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Serve one another in love, he says in verse 13. Paul knows, you see, that grace is the gasoline that drives the engine of love. Grace is powerful. The faith that saves is a faith that works. And it's the person who knows how free or He or she is in Christ who is also the most obedient person, who is the most loving person. Why is that? It's because when you finally get it that the struggle for righteousness is over, you begin to love God for who he is rather than just for what he can do for you. And you begin to love other people for who they are rather than just what you can get out of them. It's the free in Christ person who is the best lover. So there you have it. Three ways to live. So what do we do with that truth? What do we do with this whole truth of these three different ways to live? Well, let me quickly wrap up. I know time's going on here. We do what Paul says to do in verse 1. Stand firm. Stand firm. Hold fast to the freedom that you have in Christ. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And let me talk to you as a church. We here at UPC need to stand firm. And resist any effort to downplay or to minimize our freedom in Christ. Do you know, and some of you have met them, 
Some of you know them. There are people out there in the body of Christ who will try to take our focus off of Christ and put it on something else. Judaizers exist today. They come in all shapes and sizes, all forms. Wolves appear in sheep's clothing. They are very, very seductive. Even good things, even good things, good projects, good undertakings, good programs can take our eyes off of Christ and put them on other things. I think of celebrity preachers, celebrity authors can become like a law to us. Oh, have you read so-and-so? Well, you got to read that book. Gospel lingo can become a law. All sorts of things can be. It doesn't take much to take us off course. A little leaven, says Paul, leavens the whole lump. And did you notice that Paul doesn't mince words with these Judaizers? He doesn't fool around with them at all. He says they're going to pay a penalty in verse 10. And verse 12 is quite uh, painful. He calls these guys agitators, disturbers of the peace, rabble-rousers. And basically I hear Paul saying these people who mix works into the gospel by insisting on circumcision, let them go the whole way if you get my drift. If you mutilate the gospel, go ahead and mutilate yourselves. That's how Paul feels about any effort to downplay grace. The message of the cross is that offensive to human pride. That's what Paul says in verse 11. He calls it an offense. The offense of the cross is the Greek word scandalon. It means scandal or stumbling block. The cross is scandalous because it... It rejects all human merit and all human glory and it says that you're a sinner unable to save yourself and you need Jesus or you're sunk. And that's offensive to people. So prepare for opposition, UPC. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect to be marginalized. Expect to be slandered and persecuted and opposed by people who don't get the gospel. Be sure you love them back. Do what Paul says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love them back. Serve them. Spread the good news. Tell people about the freedom that we have in Christ. But stand your ground. Don't give an inch to either legalism or license because it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting us free, free from the condemning power of the law, because you've met the demands of the law for us, free from the grip of Satan, you've defeated him at the cross, free from fear of death because you rose from the tomb, free from the power and penalty of sin, one day free from the very presence of sin. Lord Jesus, thank you. We sang that song earlier. We sing it in our hearts right now. We have been freed. But God, prepare us for opposition. Help us to, when we're persecuted, to hold on to our freedom, but to use it to serve others and lay our lives down. And Lord, I would add, if there are those here today trusting in their good works and trying desperately hard to find validation in their performance, may they flee their self-righteousness and run to Jesus who paid it all. And if there are those here today who have run away from you into a life of self-indulgence, may May they flee their idol of pleasure and run to Jesus at whose hand are pleasures forevermore. And Lord, will you help us as a church to make disciples of all nations by spreading this amazing gospel and helping people put their faith in Jesus only. 
We ask this for your sake. Amen.